Good morning. Good morning and Merry Christmas. It's fun when the stage is all decorated like this, isn't it? And it's even more fun when I didn't have to do any of it. Evan did it all because he's a hard worker. Let's pray. Ask the Lord to bless our time this morning. Father in heaven, we thank you for the time that we have to gather today. We thank you for the various blessings that you've given us of being able to see professions of faith in baptism, for being able to to call out to you, uh, O come, Emmanuel, knowing that you have come, that we are on the other side of the advent, that we get to know the name of Jesus Christ. We get to read his words. We get to have your spirit dwell within us, which we know was not a privilege that your people have had forever, that that is new in the church age, and we thank you for that. Lord, let us be the champions of the Christmas season. Let us claim it as our own in a culture that has twisted it into something uh, that it's not. And Lord, let us be people who dutifully study the book so that we have real answers for real questions at this time when at least everybody knows that people say somewhere in some place that Jesus is the reason for this season, that we would have answers and explanations for that and that we would gather and celebrate better and that that would be appealing to people that you are calling to yourself. So, Father, we ask for your blessing this morning. We ask to be transformed by your word. Let our minds be renewed today and let us be sharpened like iron and let us be made more into the image of Christ. And we ask all this in his name. Amen. Appropriate expectations. Do you have them? Sometimes I do not. Let me give you an example. The other day I was driving on I-45 and I was puzzled and I was like, why are all of these people on the road? It's five o'clock on Friday going north on I-45. Why are all these people here? Inappropriate expectations. You can say, or at any carnival for kids. I think it's going to be fun. It's geared towards kids. But then I go, let's go get on the bounce house. What do you mean? It's $3 to bounce for two minutes on the bounce house. I should have expected that, that they're going to hustle these parents for all these things. Because forming appropriate expectations keeps us sane as human beings, right? I mean, how maddening would it be if you never learned to expect the water to be cold before you got into the shower? Every single every single night or morning and you just jump in the water and go, ah! You, go, you would go crazy if you never learned to expect that or that at every single four-way stop in the world, nobody knows whose turn is next. Nobody. So you're always going to have to do the scooch and wave. You just kind of scooch forward and you wet. You're going to have to do that forever. What if you never learned to expect that? You'd go crazy. We have to form appropriate expectations. Otherwise, it's just going to drive us nuts that if I follow the directions for microwaving that are listed out on this packaging, the outside edges are going to be flaming hot and the inside is going to be a brick of ice. I need to expect that and act differently, right? So we learn and we grow by formulating appropriate expectations in life. And that is what the thrust of 2 Timothy 3 Verses 1 through 9 is going to be about, but in the most serious of ways, is formulating appropriate expectations. Because if we don't learn how to do that, then we live in a state of anxious panic indefinitely. 
and we become a slave to our circumstances, we're only responding to stimuli as they come our way and never learning how to look at it from a higher vantage point in view of the whole. That we're just seeing things as they come, being merely reflexive without any concept of something greater. So we need to learn to develop and to build appropriate expectations. In 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 9, Paul's going to give Timothy a crash course on that in formulating appropriate expectations for the overall trajectory of human history and the church with it. And we're going to see that. That God, through Paul, he doesn't want Timothy and then consequently Christians like us to be unaware of the state of human affairs or the state of the church What's going to happen as time goes on within the church? He wants us to be very aware of that, that Christians need to understand the reality of the coming of false teachers, that that will always be the case, and they're always going to prey upon the weak and attempt to infiltrate the church. We need to know that. We need to expect that. Have you ever sat and thought about the gift that the book of the Revelation is? The Apocalypse of John and other eschatological texts we're talking about the end of time. Have you thought about what a gift that is? That you get to know what's going to happen at the end? That God tells us exactly how all that we have come to know and understand is real is going to end? And how what will come to be for all of eternity is going to come about? Told us all of that. We don't deserve to know any of that. We don't deserve the, the message of, hey, no matter what happens between Jude and Revelation, the last two books in your Bible... I'm going to win as God and you are going to reign forever with Jesus Christ in new heavens and new earth. That no matter what happens, that's going to be real. We don't deserve to get to know that. We deserve to be stumbling around and constant tiptoeing of anxiety, getting a panic attack at everything that goes bump in the dark. That's what we deserve, but we didn't get that. We got the truth that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church of Jesus Christ. And with all that in mind, let's read verse 1 through the end. We'll go here. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulties. We'll need to break down this sentence structure to understand first. That first word is but. What is but? It's a conjunction. Conjunctions bring together phrases, ideas, and sentences, right? They conjoin them. So what was talked about previously? What does this sentence refer back to? We, we talked about it at the end of chapter 2, the, the last third, really, of chapter 2. We're talking about the irreverent babble, the, the gangrene, the foolish controversies, correcting opponents with gentleness. That's what the previous section was about. So in conjoining to that, Paul is speaking. He says, but understand this. Timothy is what he's saying, in effect, that there's going to be a reality of false teachers, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. They're led by people, according to verse 2. This is a reality. All these things are going to be occurring within the church, Timothy. You need to know this. So Timothy, Paul's saying to Timothy, in effect, Timothy, there are going to come times that you need to be prepared for. You need to be prepared for assaults against the truth. You need to understand that those will happen, that you're going to have to correct people from within your own church and those who are assaulting against your church as it stands for the truth. And you need to expect that as a reality. 
There will always be. Some people might be granted repentance and come back to their sentence, their senses, as the previous paragraph stated, but there will always be people who never stop spreading gangrene, who never stop inciting foolish controversies. That you need to expect that for the long haul, Timothy. You need to know that. And does that sound like a job description that you want to sign up for? How would you offer that job description as a recruiter? Hey, here's what the role of a pastor is. Here's what you're going to do. You're going to always have people within your church who are going to strife and quarrel over mindless and worthless things. And then you're going to have other people who are much more gifted and much more skilled who are going to start real controversies and they're going to bring in gangrenous talk that leads to death and they're going to convince your people of it all the time. And then your job is to answer those opponents with gentleness, but you're going to have to correct them all the time. And they're going to wage the war against the truth that you believe and you have to lead your people through it. Does that sound like a job that you want? Because that's the pastor description according, pastor and elder description according to 2 Timothy. And that's what Jesus calls a true shepherd in John chapter 10. Jesus says a true shepherd stands his ground when the wolves come, but the, just the hired help, the extra labor, they run. They run when the wolf comes. They run when adversity comes. But the true one, true shepherd, stands his ground and lays down his life for the sheep. And so Paul is preparing Timothy for that very thing. This is the reality that Paul wants Timothy to believe and to know every single day he comes to work. This is what you're going to do every single day. Come prepared to expect that. And did you catch the definite nature of this? What does it say in verse 1? In the last days, there will come times of difficulty. Not hey, these times may come, so kind of be on the lookout for that. Or, hey, they could come unless you kind of do some things here and there. So watch out. No, he says, they will come. They will come to the healthy church. They will come to the limping church. They will come. And Paul isn't projecting. This is where we can be tempted to do. He isn't projecting some future day that's coming like way down the road that we're never gonna have to really mess with because we always kind of want to hope that we're not in the last days, but except for is Jesus going to come back, then go ahead and put us in the last days now. But he says they will come. This isn't some future thing that could never happen to you. Because after he lists all the characteristics we're going to get to in a minute of these false teachers, he says at the end of verse 5, avoid such people. He doesn't say plan to avoid such people or, hey, you should think about when this, if this could come, that you need to avoid them. He says, you need to do it right now. That, Timothy, you live in these last days. Because according to the New Testament, the last days begin when Jesus ascends into glory. So we call this season, Christmas season, we call it Advent. And we're waiting for another Advent when Jesus returns to earth again. So we, in a physical form. So we are in between the advents. Those, biblically, are the last days. And Peter understood this in the book of Acts. Remember when Peter, they, have, they, get, the, they get the tongues of fire over their head in Acts chapter 2, and then he, he starts preaching. And he, one of his reference texts is Joel chapter 2. And Joel's talking about the last days. And Peter uses that text to prove that now we live in them. 
that what Joel was talking about, the prophet from centuries ago, is happening now, is true now. That we live in the last days. See, Revelation is talking about the end of the last days, but we live in the last days. We live between Jude and Revelation in our New Testaments. So Paul is saying to Timothy, you need to expect these because they're happening now. And if that's true in A.D. 68, how much more true is it in 2017? If it was true for him to expect it then, it needs to be true now. So should we be shocked to see the moral decay and the festering wound of false teaching in the day in which we live? Now, notice I said shocked, not grieved. Certainly we should be grieved as God is grieved in Isaiah 520, when anyone calls good, evil, and evil, good. Isaiah 520 says, woe to those who call evil, good, and good, evil. And Amos, this prophet says, Amos in 5, and 5, 7, and 14, oh, you who turn justice to wormwood and cast down righteousness to the earth, seek good and not evil that you may live so that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you. And even Jesus is grieved over this. We see this in Matthew 23, 37, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. So we grieve over the evil of the last days and the warping of the truth over the last days. We grieve, but we are not shocked. We are not surprised because we have been told to expect it. That's what Paul wants Timothy to understand. So what he's going to do in verses 2, 3, 4, and 5 is he's going to lay out 19 descriptors, words that describe or essentially identifiers of false teachers, of what these people, as verse 2 says, for these people, we're going to lay out 19, and we're going to look at all 19 of them. And I got reasons why we're going to look at this. But I think the first reason why is because I know when I get to a list in Scripture, be it names or places or sins like this or good attributes, I just kind of rip right through it. And I don't really study it very well. And I think that's true for a lot of us. So we're going to look at each of these words for that reason. But also, we need to be able to rightly identify the rampant sin prevalent in our day and the markers of false teachers so that we're prepared. We need to understand those. And we also, the reason I always go through these sins, whether or not he's speaking to believers at the time, we need to be aware that we as Christians are capable of any of these and could be currently guilty of them right now personally. And we need to wrestle with that. So we're gonna go through this list and we're gonna look at all of them. But before we get into the list, we need to ask a crucial question. How do we know that these people in verse 2 are not just the lost of the world? That these are just all unbelievers, what's going to look like just outside your doors? Because you, you could get there. But I believe it to be false teachers and have some reasons why. We already talked about, remember that there's a conjunction. It says, but in the last days it will come. So, but connecting it back to people in the church from chapter 2, claiming to have the truth, but leading people away, right? Hymenaeus and Philetus, right? They're leading these people astray with the truth inside the confines of the gathered body of Jesus Christ. So we have that there as well. But we have another indication that these false teachers are warping the Christian message, and it's because of what's written at the end of verse 5. He says, 
avoid these people. Avoid them. Now, where in your New Testament at all is there a command from Jesus or the apostles that says, avoid lost people? People who don't know Jesus and are just living like pagans, avoid them. We, we have the opposite command, right? We have go therefore into all the world and make disciples. So who are these people that we're supposed to avoid? They're those masquerading as Christians, as Christian leaders. Paul clarifies this in 1 Corinthians 5 in a way that I think is important for us to read right now. So it'll be up on the screen. Let me read it to us right now. He says in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 9, talking to this church at Corinth, he said, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, a reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders, meaning unbelievers? It is not those, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So see what Paul's saying there? He's not saying, I'm not... I'm not telling you guys to never hang out with lost people. That's ridiculous. You have to go outside of the planet to do that. I'm saying anyone who bears the name of brother, any so-called Christian, you don't even eat with that person if their life is marked by rampant, unrepentant sin. So that's what Paul is talking about here with these types of influencers. And so we're going to look at it and give a descript, uh, an explanation for each of these descriptors. And I'm also going to give you the opposite of it. Because if you take the other two pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy and Titus, that sandwich, 2 Timothy, they describe who you should listen to. They describe who you should promote as leaders and influencers within the church. Elders and pastors, their descriptions are listed out in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, and they have a direct contrast to these sinful markers of false teachers. So I'm going to point them out as we go along as well. So let's look at the first one. Verse 2, for people will be lovers of self. Have you ever heard these book titles, Your Best Life Now? Become a Better You? It's Your Time? There's three of Joel Osteen's top-selling books, and you know why? False teachers are never hurting for an audience is because they're telling you what unbelievers already want to hear in their depraved state, that everything is all about you. Love thyself. They already want that. I'm already into me as a lost person. So when you say, hey, everything is just about you in your church, then of course you're going to gather a big group. You're giving lost people what they naturally want. They already want that. They already love themselves. And also, I challenge you to find any false teacher's book that doesn't have a massive picture of their face on it. Lovers of self is what he says to notice. 
<laughs> and this is this made it to be the defining characteristic of Western culture that we even talk about. Psychology journals write about self-love and growing in self-love. And is this not the gas tank on the car that moves social media? I love me and I want to talk about me and I want you to like me. Lovers of self. This is what he says. This is a marker of them. The opposite of that, a distinction of a qualified leader. Titus 1.7, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. Not into himself. Next one's lovers of money. We know false teachers do this. We don't have to go on and on and on about this. We know they're rich. We know they get rich. We know that Benny Hinn has a jet. We know Creflo Dollar has two jets. We get that, that they have tons of money and they love their money. And even the unbelieving world sees that lifestyle as a direct contradiction to the message of Jesus. They could even spot that. But do we love money? Are we classified as lovers of money? Am I constantly thinking about how can I accumulate more and how can I do this for me? Or am I thinking about how can I put my money to work for the kingdom of God? We, we got to wrestle with that because this is a mark of, of a false teacher. First Timothy 3, 3 says that a distinction of a qualified leader is that an overseer must not be a lover of money. Plain and simple. Proud. The next one's proud and arrogant. And I always think it's interesting when those, seem, those words are interchangeable for us, and they definitely refer to a similar type sin. But I think of proud as, I'm too good for blank. And arrogant is, I'm the most important person in the room. Two sides of a similar coin, but the same kinds of thing. That I'm too good for that, that's beneath me, and I'm the most important person in the room right now. That, that's, that's what pride and arrogance manifests like. I had a guy discipling me when I was a, about a decade ago, <clears throat> when I was the junior high football coach, and he was the senior high football coach. He was a high school football coach, and I asked him, I asked Boyd Brigman, will you disciple me? Will you meet with me? Because I'm an idiot, and you seem like you know what you're doing. So I asked him, and then he, we started meeting together, and then as the low guy on the totem pole at the school, after every assembly and every chapel and all these things at a Christian school, I had to pick up all the chairs, no matter what. It was me by myself. Other PE teacher mysteriously had something to do, and it was just me by myself. So I get down, I'm talking to Boyd, and I'm like, man, this is just the worst. I mean, I have a college degree. Why am I picking up all these chairs by myself? None of those people, they're picking up the chairs. They're not doing any of these things. And he just let me kind of rant on and on and on like a good discipler would do. Then he goes, you know what, Stuart? The guy who never learned how to humbly pick up the chairs should never be allowed to be the one talking to the people in the chairs. And I was like, oh, that's a really good point. So I think you're right on that one. But a distinction of a qualified leader is for an overseer, Titus 1-7, must not be arrogant because that's the marks of a disqualified leader. The next one on the list in verse 2 is abusive. The NASB translates it as a reviler. This is in speaking of the harshness of somebody's language. That they're abrupt and abrasive. That their language is angry. And we can't, as the church, excuse profane, abrupt, abrasive language as just merely being passionate. Because the guy's gifted. And we can't do that. Because this is the mark of a false teacher. This is the opposite of a qualified 
teacher. Paul calls them disqualified if they're abusive and reviling in their language. And Titus 1, 7 and 8 and 1 Timothy 3, 3 says, for an overseer must not be quick-tempered and must not be quarrelsome, that their language is soothing. It may be direct, but it's not abrasive. It's not reviling. It's not abusive. You see the next one there on the list in verse 2? Disobedient to their parents. Now, why would you list that among a list? This isn't a list of Romans 1 as well. Anytime there's a big list, there's usually some level of disobedience to parents in it. Why would you put that in there with abusive? And we're going to get to a minute, we're going to get to brutal. Disobedient to their parents. The most fundamental relationship that any human being has is the one they have with their parents because it's the first one that they ever know. And so if that relationship gets warped, and becomes abusive, and it drastically affects the child negatively, right? We all know that. And people who go into a foster care situation or an adoptive situation, they know that, and they're coached through that, that that's going to warp them. But then it can go the other way. Now, what if this child has parents that are involved in their lives, but has become uncontrollable and has become rebellious? Why would that kid ever grow up to submit to a heavenly father? that he has to pursue on his own and has to be corrected by the word, much less a person, a human being right there in your life. Why would that person ever submit to the God of the Bible? Because God has ordained the family as the primary institution, the primary institution that the church is built on, that society is built on, the government is built on, and then if the family disintegrates because it has a leader who never learned to respect his own parents, why would the church stand Why would that be a positive thing in any way? If all the bricks of the house become obliterated, the house just becomes a pile of rubble. If you lose all the bricks. So Paul is saying to Timothy, this is going to happen, and this is going to be a marker, so you need to watch this. Disobedient to parents. This is a distinction of a qualified leader is an intact home. Striving towards a godliness in the home. 1 Timothy 3, 4 says, that he must, meaning an elder pastor, manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping children submissive. That's a mark of a qualified leader. The next one is ungrateful. Thankfulness is inherently humble, right? Proud people are not thankful. Because if I thank you for something, then that means I couldn't do it or didn't think to do it, and you did it for me or gave it to me. So that requires some humility, and if you don't have that, then you are disqualified. If this, if that's a mark of a disqualified leader. I had a pastor friend one time take this young guy out to lunch. He was really interested in the ministry. He really wanted to, he didn't know if he wanted to go overseas or be a pastor, but he's fired up about this and he wants to, to talk to his pastor about it and see where they can, what he thinks. So my pastor friend takes this guy out to lunch. He has lunch with the kid and he's, they're at this restaurant. And the guy interested in going into ministry is just treating the waitress like a dog and being rude and unthankful about all the things that she's doing. At the end of the conversation, the young man goes, well, so what do you think about me in ministry? Where do you think I should go? Where do you think God could use me and my gifts best? And he says, son, I can't recommend you for ministry at all. Because if you can't treat this waitress with respect and gratitude, 
then you don't deserve to be leading and influencing the people of God on any level. Because ungratefulness is inherently unrespectful. For an overseer, Titus 1a, must be upright, must be grateful. The next one, so we go ungrateful to unholy. Unholy is common or profane or integrated with the surroundings. Holiness means to be set apart, to be out from or out of, to be different, to be otherworldly. That's what holiness means. It's, it's other, set apart. And there are days coming is what Paul says to Timothy. Days that are here, Paul says to Timothy, days that are here for us where distinction towards God is reprehensible even within the church. You hear people say, man, I want a pastor. I want elders or leaders who aren't like holier than thou. I don't want that. Well, how much sin do you want to be present in your pastor or elder? How much sin is the appropriate? I want to be able to sin this much. Or are you just saying, I don't want anybody who's going to make me feel uncomfortable in my own sin. I want a leader that's going to say, I'm okay, you're okay, let's just hang out. I don't want that holier than thou. Well, how much sin do you really want in your life? We're not talking about self-righteousness. That's different. That's not holiness. Nobody wants a self-righteous leader. That's disqualifying as well. That's pharisaical. But holiness, the pursuit of godliness and becoming more like Christ, absolutely. The display of Christ-like character is essential, and the absence of it is disqualification, according to what Paul says here in this letter. And Titus 1.8 says, For an overseer must be holy. Must be holy. Not should be, or kind of is, must be. Must be holy. Another mark of these people is they're heartless. Verse 3, a lack of compassion. We're all aware of the atrocities that happen in the middle of the day, and nobody does anything about it. Nobody acts. No compassion. A heartless person is one disqualified regardless of how talented they are. The mindset of your problems are not my problems is a disqualification. A qualification of it is 1 Timothy 1, 2. Therefore, an overseer must be hospitable. You've got to welcome people in. You've got to be hospitable. Have a heart. Next one's unappeasable. When is the moral decay on any level satisfied? When is it going to become to an end? When is it going to be appeased? See, a false teacher is unappeasable. Any church, any leader that has attempted to capitulate to the culture is never done capitulating. It's never good enough. That slope never ceases to be slippery. The Church of Sweden, which is a liberal branch of the Lutheran church, they've been performing gay weddings for years. They have gay bishops and priests And they just came out with an edict uh, suggesting, declaring that all of their clergy should refer to God in non-gender specific pronouns. You can't use he anymore because that's offensive. That's what their church pastors and leaders are supposed to do now. And you know what the culture said, the watching culture? They said, that's not enough because of X, Y, and Z. That's still not good enough. And so they're just going to keep capitulating. They're going to be unappeasable. What more do you want from me, world? I'll do anything that you say. 
A false teacher is unappeasable. But 1 Timothy 3.8 says a qualified leader must not be greedy for dishonest gain. Not trying to gain anything dishonestly, but sticking honestly to the word of God. Next word is slanderous, making false or damaging statements about somebody else. The person who is constantly slanderous becomes unrespectable and viewed as just a walking human tabloid. Nobody respects the tabloids because it's just pure slander, just making things up and saying negative things all the time. But a qualified leader, therefore, an overseer must be respectable, respectable because he speaks the truth. Next one's without self-control. While this descriptor, self-control, may be done in secret, it never stays in secret, right? So we're currently seeing men in high positions drop like flies because of sins that they thought was done in secret. But now it's come to light. And all these horrible things, all of these these sexual sins and then these lies, what does it all boil down to? It just boils down to a lack of self-control. Can't control themselves. They, they can't control themselves because they don't have the Holy Spirit. And self-control is inherently a fruit of the Holy Spirit. And a qualified leader in 1 Timothy 3, 2, therefore an overseer must be self-controlled. Must be. Next one's brutal, savage violence. It may sound ludicrous to us in this day. Like, oh, we would never follow some kind of brutal, violent leader. That, that wouldn't happen in this day and age. I just think that doesn't seem as, as applicable today. Did you ever hear of a guy named Vernon Howell? Does Vernon Howell ring a bell? He changed his name in 1990. Does this name ring a bell? David Koresh? So this guy, David Koresh, overtakes the Branch Davidians by force and gunfire. The previous leader is serving a life sentence for murder. And then he leads a 51-day standoff with the ATF and the FBI, resulting in dozens of fatalities, all while claiming to be a shepherd of God. Changes his name to David because that's the, the son of David is what the Messiah is going to be. Changes his last name to Koresh because he thinks it's the Hebrew name of, for King Cyrus in the book of Isaiah, who God uses as a, as a fistful of force to help his people. So it can happen, and it has happened in our very own generation. Because people are drawn to personal or to powerful personalities, whether it be powerful in soothing, powerful in comforting, or powerful in physical dominance. In distinction of a qualified leader, 1 Timothy 3, 2, therefore an overseer must be not violent, but gentle. The next one is not loving good. You have no love for what God loves. You don't love what is good because God is good. Just a love for gain, power, and prestige. Titus 1, 7, and 8, for an overseer must be a lover of good. Verse 4, treacherous. If the man has no track record of faithfully submitting to authority, then why would we think that he would, sub- he would be a good leader? Treachery is rebellion against a leader. And Titus 1, 6 says that this leader can't not be open to the charge of insubordination. Reckless, acting on impulse and not wisdom. This false teacher is characterized by a lack of godly discipline. He does whatever he wants to. When he feels like he wants to do it, no discipline. Living reckless, Titus 1, 7 and 8, that for an overseer must be disciplined. Swollen with conceit, these teachers will be bloated on their own Kool-Aid. 
I'm always very wary when I see a ministry that, and the name of that ministry is the name of the person. Not that that's always a defining mark of a false teacher, but why did you name it after you? Seems kind of conceited. First Timothy 3, 6 says he, that a leader must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. If it feels good, do it. If it feels good, it can't be wrong because God made you with those feelings and God doesn't make wrong things. So love of our, lover of pleasure, that's the message we hear today. It's the spirit of the day is the pursuit of pleasure. Their chief message is gratifying yourself should be your primary concern. Because gratifying yourself is not going to hurt anyone else. Well, as long as it doesn't hurt anyone else. But all sin intrinsically hurts someone else. So lovers of pleasure, dis- distinction of a qualified leader, Titus 1.6, not open to the charge of debauchery, just doing what you want to do. <clears throat> then here's where we get to this crescendo in verse 5. Having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. So what are examples can you think of who have an appearance of godliness but deny its power? Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, prosperity preachers. Why? Because they don't have the true gospel. And Romans 1, 16 and 17 says that the true gospel is the power of God for salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Because the true gospel says that you are unrighteous to the point of earning condemnation by God in your natural state. And you need a level of righteousness that you can never attain. You need righteousness that's outside of you, that's alien to you. But the good news is that somebody did earn that level of righteousness. Jesus Christ, the God-man, earned that level of righteousness and it can be imputed to you. How can it be imputed to you, if you repent and believe in that message, then that level of righteousness, the righteousness that God requires for any who are going to be with him for eternity can be given to you if you repent and believe. And when you do that repentance and belief, the power of the gospel, the power of God is unleashed to rip out your heart of stone and to put in and sew up a heart of flesh that beats anew. And the old you is gone and a new you has come. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. And any other message besides that one has hints of godliness, but has no power to actually save you from eternal condemnation. And if it cannot save you, then it can only condemn you. And so we avoid that. That's where the verse 5 ends with. We avoid these people because these men that project a veneer of godliness what they're going to do is they're going to prey on the vulnerable. That's what they're going to do. It's not this. So let's look at verse six and seven. Read these out loud. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. This is not a general statement about women. This is descripting or describing what these men do. They go and find people who are vulnerable, and they find these women, no husbands around, who find these women, creep into their households, and prey on the ones who are weighed down by false teaching and by sin. They're always bouncing around, striving for learning, but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. They're always bouncing around from ideology to different ideology, from false teacher to different cult, on to the next, and they're going to prey on that one. They learned all of these false teachings, but none of them have the truth, so they don't either. 
Doesn't this sound like what Satan did? I want to, I want to plummet all of humanity into separation from God and subject them to death. Who does he go to first? Eve. Mindset being of these evil people headed by Satan. If I can get the women, then the men will come of their own accord. Just like Adam did. Took no convincing. If I can get them, then I can get everybody else. And that's the kind of people that false teachers are going to pounce on. They're weighed down. They're vulnerable. They have sin in their past that they're trying to get rid of, but they can't do it. And if you just keep projecting, try this, try this, try this, keep sending me money, watch me on TV and send me money, then maybe you'll get it. Maybe you'll get there. They're offering desperate people a shortcut to righteousness, and they are very good at it. And he says uh, gives us a picture of who they're like. Verse 8, Janus and Jambres opposed Moses. So these men also opposed the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the truth. You ever heard of Janus and Jambres in association with Moses? Those two names don't appear in your Old Testament at all. But we know who they are based on Jewish tradition, that these are the men that were the sorcerers of Pharaoh. So do you have any cross-references in your Bible? One of them is probably Exodus 7, verses 10 through 12. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and sorcerers, Janus and Jambres, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. So Jewish tradition teaches that the names of the two men leading that group of magicians and wise men is Janus and Jambres. So Paul's affirming at least that part of Jewish tradition as it's written down, that that that's who they were. And they opposed the truth, verse 8. That these men oppose the truth. These false teachers are not benign. They're not merely alternative, and they are not permissible. They are a malignant tumor that only leads to death, and their minds are corrupted. A corrupted mind is not a saved mind and then therefore cannot project out the message of true salvation. So Paul's not taking this lightly in any way, and he says they are what? They're disqualified regarding the faith. Disqualified is different than unqualified. I can still apply for a job that I'm unqualified for. I can still get a job that I'm unqualified for. I'm unqualified to run in the Olympic decathlon, but I can still run if I so choose and embarrass myself. But if I'm disqualified from a job, then if I got that job, it would be a detriment for the company, right? And if I'm disqualified from the race, I'm not allowed to run at all. I'm not a participant on any level. So disqualification is what the word that he uses in verse 9. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all. As was that of those two men. False teachers won't win the day. They will not have the last word. Do not be deceived. Galatians 6, 7 says, God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. This was true for Janus and Jambres, right? You remember the story of the ten plagues? Of Moses coming to Pharaoh over and over. Exodus 7, 11. They're able to turn staffs into snakes. Exodus 7, 22, they're able to turn water into blood. Exodus 8, 7, they're able to make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. But eventually, their secret dark arts run out of juice. In Exodus 8, 18, so the magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. 
So there were gnats on man and beast. The magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. We can't do this. In Exodus 9, 11, and the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils came upon the, magi- the magicians and all the Egyptians. Janus and Jamus ran a good sham for a while, but then God completely humiliates them by covering them in boils. You can't even protect your own bodies. God will not be mocked. Their folly will be plain to all. God humiliates them. And this is this, this, the same will be true of all false teachers in the last days. None of them have ever gamed the system. None of them have ever beaten God's truth. None of them have ever finished and snuck through to the end. They've all been found out always. Their folly will be plain to all, even if they're packing out basketball-sized arenas today. Their folly will be plain to all. So what do we do? We do exactly what these nine verses tell us to do. We expect, we identify, we avoid, and we trust. We expect this to happen. We expect false teachers to come and we prepare for it. We, we are scrutinizers that we don't just assume if it bears the name Christian or it was marketed to Christians that it's trustworthy. Brothers and sisters, we have to learn how to scrutinize everything that we read and everything that we hear and everything that we watch and lay it up against the word of truth. That We can't just take it wholesale because the person said they were a Christian when they wrote it or when they said it. We scrutinize everything because we expect these kinds of people to come down the pipe. And we identify, we know these 19 descriptors and we hold them up against anyone who claims to have the truth. And if they meet those descriptors, then they're wrong. And we hold them up against the descriptors of the qualified teachers in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus 1. We have to identify truth. I had to do this the other day. I was interviewing a couple talking about Membership, and we're talking about a crucial position that we're supposed to hold, and they held to an aberrant side of that. And I said, look, I don't care who you are or what you do, but friend, if you say that Papa John's is better than Domino's, you can't be here. This is one of those moments. I don't need people like that skulking around my church trying to say that that's wolf in a pizza delivery guy's clothing. No, we, we, we do weigh everything because the truth will always shine through. And we avoid. What does it Timothy say, Timothy? We avoid. You don't need to continually watch them. Well, it's good every now and then. We don't need to continually read them. Well, some of it's good. It says avoid. Avoid them. And we think on what's true and honorable and loving and commendable and excellent and worthy of praise, like Philippians 4, 8 says, and we trust God, like he says in verse 9, that his word will come true, that they will not get very far. That God's handling of false teachers, he's been doing it long before we were born, he'll be doing it long after we're gone, that they will not win the day. The Lord will avenge, so we trust in him. Father in heaven, we thank you for giving us this list that we aren't just stumbling around here trying to figure it out based on our intuition, who we should trust, who has the words of truth, And not only did you give us this list, you give us this list encased in your Bible that we can have truths and facts to stack up against anybody's message to see whether or not it is in line or out of line. We thank you for that, Lord. Let us go forward as as keen Christians who are able to be as winsome as dove, but also shrewd as snakes, to understand the truth but not be violent about it. And we thank you 
for giving us the truth. And we thank you for taking out our hearts of stone and giving us hearts of flesh and making us new creatures. All through the power of your son, Jesus, in his name we pray, amen.